Sin Carriers, a West Side Fairy Tale story, contains violent, graphic, and often unsettling content. Further, it takes place in a period of American history where certain now unacceptable outlooks were commonplace. In the spirit of pulling back the lid on the mythos of the American Wild West, many of these outlooks are espoused by various characters, whether outright or through their internal dialogue. These characters' thoughts and actions are their own, and not those of the author. Listener discretion is advised. the train and the rider cajoled the must into rushing in. Sue dreamt of the deal she made, what it has cost her, and what it might lead to. The must arrived soon after and pushed Tolliver too far, resulting in the use of their respective tricks to try killing each other. Vasily fought a lizard creature under the town, mostly being dragged along as he tried to free Moira from his grasp. Vicky, Elam, Ducky, and Mildover made their way through town, trying to find a safe way to land. Instead, they found a series of cultish curiosities, culminating in the discovery of a pale-skinned nightmare creature lounging in a bed inside the house. On this episode of Sin Carriers, a boy reminisces about the life that led him to become a beast. Vasily fights to his last breath against an unimaginable foe. One of our travelers is almost fatally injured. A voice helps Moira rise from the darkness. A letter is accidentally delivered. And an important article of clothing is irreparably damaged. Will the contents of Vasily's red letter finally be revealed? Who will live and who will die before our travelers depart this haunted place? And what is the true nature of the white creatures inhabiting towns along this train line? You may find the answers to all these questions and more on this, the 15th episode of Sin Carriers, Drown. The boy had watched the waters rise every year of his life, breaking in past the shoals and pushing the brackish mix about his house deep into the throatlit streams that fed the swamp and Garvey Pond. It was a place of browns and greens all year long, touched through with bright shocks of purple and scarlet when the vines bloomed in spring. Amongst this simple palette, the boy would play and swim and hunt, trapping gator with hooks and barrel lines and noodling out catfish. His mother looked after him, or at least so, she told folks. His father was gone to the swamp, and the boy was a burden to her. She was burdened to herself as well, caught up with consumption and coughing herself to death on her rotten mattress, all stained with blood and sickness. She had been fastidious when he was small, clean and detail-focused, but the disease and her medicine wore her thin, made her skin go clear and shiny like a blister needing to be pricked. Consumption was a death sentence, but the medicine left little of her to kill as she took more and more of it, left her having fits and screaming through the night when the last drop wasn't enough, left him to think on his many long trips away from their crooked home in the bayou to get medicine in town. He learned to be alone, to sit and wait, to smell the water and soak in it, watching the gators the way they watched him. Maybe they'd once thought of him as little more than food. But once he'd eaten enough of them, they had started giving him distance. And respect. Before she lay down in her bed that last time, his mother taught him to skin and hide alligators. Which he then began doing with all his food, on account of not knowing better. Swamp deer and rabbits, fish, and the birds he ate as well. But it was only the gators that he set out the heads of beating down heavy stakes through their skulls to keep them floating off in storms and high tides. He would lay amongst the bones and skulls and stare at the gators from across the water. His water. Garvey twirled amongst the sunken beams of this forsaken town like a water snake gliding through cypress roots. Sour water filled his mouth and caught on the glottal sphincter at the base of his throat. The pressure felt exhilarating. Better still was the feel of the little man struggling in his teeth as he twirled and twisted through the water. He scraped the ground and felt the man's odd, hard skin shiver in his mouth. 
Something hot and lightly electric slid down the skin of his right flank, and suddenly he was swimming much faster. So much so, he scantily avoided the jagged barbs of a broken support leg sideways along the ground. The little man had gone, slipped clean out of his shell like a snail to dart out of the water. Garvey could sense his absence. Flesh felt electric in his waters, like static rising up before a lightning strike. It crept over him like a lover's fingers. No matter, though. He'd dragged the man across half the town, and the girl was near dead drowned and likely still laying on that busted pier. He floated upward, eyes breaking the surface and rolling about like billiard balls to take in the fluttering lights of his artificial cave. There was little more in the world he could ask for than this. Mother had gotten sicker and sicker, and so had the swamp. Federal boys had diverted inland waterways and killed all the upstream life with fresh water. Every day the boy would watch fish and ferns and even gators floating out to the seagulls past the shoals. For them, every day was a feast. Though when he tried to eat the reeking meat, even cooked, it only made him sick. Mother sent him to town in her stead, forcing him to sit at the edge of her bed for an hour while she cut his hair. He listened to the shears and felt his scalp grow lighter. She wouldn't talk to him most of the time. She would just wheeze and then lay down for hours to catch her breath. Sometimes the noises in her chest sounded almost like a roaring gator. He wondered if them out in the swamp could hear, and what they might think she was saying. It was on the boy to get the medicine mother needed to be well. If she didn't have it, her moaning grew so bad he couldn't sleep. Laudanum, it was called, and she drank it by the bottleful, gasping and sighing when it had been too long since the last drink. Then she would bask in the still darkness of her dying room like a gator beneath the sun, the noise of her sickness rolling right out the bones in her chest, a low hum with a deep vibrato. Sometimes he thought it could make the entire house shake. The house probably was shaking. Its roots were like those of the mangroves out in the new waters around his house, shriveling up and going soft as plants he'd never seen rose around them, grew on them, fungus and mold and whole little vines like he'd never seen before blooming and choking them to death. The mortification of Garvey Pond pushed him ever more into the towns of the same people who benefited from that killing. They didn't appreciate his forwardness there, his lack of social compunctions. Something deep in his heart told him that wasn't the way of things, that he needed to be more acquiescent to these other human creatures. But he had no desire to act as such. The boy met every look with the same directness he showed the alligators. He followed the symbols his mother had scrawled on an old bit of cloth for him, finally locating the home of the medicine man. This person was tall and had hairs on his face like he was trying to pass as a baby catfish. He spoke in a cross way about the boy's impoliteness, but fixed his tone well enough when the boy showed his mother's cash and stated his needs. Vasily stood amongst the shadows, shirtless and dripping on an unsteady crossbeam. He watched the thing surface and move slowly away from him, its eyes almost imperceptible atop the flickering water. The Russian cursed to himself and looked through the grunge and filth to find some way out from beneath the town. Nothing. Around him rose the sprawling orchard of support poles holding the rickety town aloft. They were to the number smeared with thick concentrations of mold and algae, which had nearly thwarted his attempts to crawl out of the water. By some miracle he'd broken loose from the thing that had bitten into him near a pile of sunken wood. Despite the creature's best efforts to snap him in two... His exhausted, battered body could still climb. That said, he was fairly sure he'd either broken or bruised a few ribs. His left arm didn't quite want to comply with anything he told it to do, and he was having trouble catching his breath. Though he might chalk that up to being too afraid to just pant like his lungs wanted him to. Vasily's upper bodysuit had performed above all expectations on this trip, but he'd been forced to sacrifice it to keep from drowning. The thing had almost certainly spit it out, leaving it sunken and unrecoverable in the water, though perhaps it was better that way. 
He'd spent too many quiet nights staring at the scorch marks on the chest plate and thinking of Yumiko. God damn it, man. Get a hold of yourself. He whispered, looking cautiously over the water. Nothing. Possibly the thing had gone, but who knew? Almost on cue, automatic weapons fire tore the air somewhere above the planks. Vasily ducked instinctively and nearly slipped from his perch. Beneath him, almost directly beneath, the creature bounded out of the water and swam rapidly in that direction. Christ, Vasily muttered to himself, looking around again and finding nothing to keep him out of the water save for a distant cluster of cross-braced supports. Likely they formed the base of some sturdier, heavier building. Hopefully something full of alligator poison, he thought to himself, smiling at the stupidity of his own joke. He was exhausted. More gunfire rang out in the distance, and this time he heard something like a bee whiz up behind him and smack a chunk of wood off the nearby post. Chunks of wet wood blew loose into the side of his head and knocked him into the water. Ah, fuck, he thought to himself. He kicked off the closest solid thing and broke the surface, pawing rapidly in the direction of the cross-bracing. The noise of gunfire rose and subsided, the crescendo of a victor being decided, possibly. But in that silence rose a more unsettling noise. A constant, hurried splashing moving in his direction. Vasily didn't have to look to know what it was. He powered through the water like a steamship, kicking out a wake he could hear slapping up against the supports. He was too far from the cross braces. The sound of spreading water grew closer. Something scratched against his belly, his legs. Closer. It was more wood. A deadfall beneath the surface. Closer. Vasily scrambled over the broken wood, feeling something popping in his chest over and over again. Even the confused fumbling through this hedge of splinters was faster by far than he could run. Still, he was not far enough. The thing burst from the water behind him. He glanced back, seeing its great jaws stretched open. Two heavy sheets of cheek leather parted and spread. Its mouth seemed as wide as a child's bed. Vasily leapt away just ahead of the crashing maw and then shouted when the thing got itself caught on the splinters beneath the surface. It roared in pain and confusion. Rearing back onto its hind legs to reveal a shard of wood the length of Vasily's leg punching through its gut. It looked at the wood and then at Vasily, who had miraculously avoided getting caught on the splinters. His desperate jump had dropped him onto the uneven surface of a broad, slick log. He pointed at the thing. Yes! Fuck you, lizard! Fuck you! The thing's gullet vibrated and Vasily's skin chilled at the noise it made. The roar was primal, needful. He watched as the creature's forelegs rose and then snapped forward several feet apiece. What had been stubby, crocodilian legs became long, sinewy human arms. The claws at the end snapped outward, reforming into long, humanoid fingers. It bared its teeth at Vasily and began pulling the massive splinter out of its belly. Shit, Vasily said in Russian, scrambling to his feet and making his way to the crossbeams. He might have cried. They were easy to climb, but led nowhere. Beyond them lay another massive stretch of water. He hissed through his teeth and pulled his pistol out of his pocket. It had detached easily enough from its slide, but now with a third bath in this disgusting water, he doubted it would fire again. Still, he had little other recourse. Vasily braced himself against the crossbeams, racked the slide on the pistol, and fired. Click. The creature gave him a fleeting look and finished pulling the splinter free. It looked the thing over and then tossed it aside. Vasily chambered a fresh round and fired. Bang! This one struck the thing in the chest, punching a neat little hole from which sprang the softest trickle of blood. The thing didn't even seem to care merely started making its way carefully over the splinters beneath it. There was nowhere for Vasily to go, and it knew that. Rack the slide. Click. Rack the slide. Click. Rack the slide. Bang! This time, Vasily shot the creature's face, which did cause it to pause in its approach. 
The beast's head snapped back as the bullet ripped a channel along its flesh and skirted the perimeter of its skull. A nasty-looking wound, but nothing remotely critical. It wiped a handful of blood and grime from its face and tasted it, spitting the filthy slurry into the water. Rack the slide. Click. It was close enough it hovered over Vasily, well within its killing range. The Russian ignored it, repeatedly clearing his pistol and firing it on wet rounds. This exercise was futile, and clearly mildly humorous to the creature. Vasily could hear it chuckling. He racked one last round and fired it at the thing's groin as the great maw split open above him. Bang! The creature stumbled back, howled in a distorted human voice, and then charged blindly at Vasily. Shocked by the outcome of this attack, but no less still in the game, Vasily flopped onto his side with all the grace of a dying pigeon. The creature bit into the support beams and wrenched them away, causing the entire structure overhead to buckle and groan. Vasily looked up just in time to see rotten joists splitting overhead and dumping the ceiling over top them. He crawled back into the splintered wood, ducking a blind swipe from the thing as it held itself between the legs and stumbled about in a pained frenzy. Water shot up to Vasily's waist and knocked him down over the broken wood as the floor collapsed. He had to push himself up and claw his way through a fresh fall of dust as more of the building shuddered and crumbled. Blindly, he fought for any handhold that would lead him up and away from the water. Suddenly, he was inside a sagging, screaming building and dodging barrels and carts rolling into the growing pit. One of these struck him in the leg. He didn't see exactly what it was. It knocked his feet out from underneath him. Vasily screamed in pain, but managed to right himself and hobble to a section of collapsed joist with enough angle and grip to climb up onto the regular floor. It seemed the worst of the collapse had subsided, but he had no desire to stay and find out. Muscular reptilian arms burst through the boards closest to his face and he had to slide back down into the water to keep from being grabbed by his hair. The creature stumbled into view, still clutching itself and now stuck in the ruined floor. Vasily looked around and hobbled to the next closest route out of the building. A singular joist covered in broken floorboards. It was attached to nothing, simply resting against the lip of the larger hole overhead. But the boards would serve well enough as makeshift ladder rungs. Get back here, the thing said, arresting Vasily mid-stride. When he looked back, he could finally see past the thing's horrific appearance. His fear had locked him well into his interpretation of some seaborne Cambrian monstrosity, but now he could see the man behind the monster. Quite literally, too. Underneath the more animalistic expressions lay the features of one of the drivers from the train. A man Vasily believed was called Garvey by his peers. No! Vasily said throwing his now useless pistol at the thing's face. Garvey held up a hand and caught the pistol in midair. Vasily cursed and ran toward his last hope of escape, creeping up the boards like a monkey despite his recent injuries. Then he was out and on solid, enough, ground for the first time since this madness began. He screamed at the top of his lungs and looked back in victory at the lizard thing that had been hunting him. Garvey glared at Vasily and shot him with his own pistol, the gunfire surprising both of them. Vasily felt the shot burn through the skin on the side of his face like a flaming whip strike. He stumbled back and kept stumbling, feeling a great deal of blood washing down his cheek. After all that, undone by his own stupidity. Why did you throw your pistol at him? Yumiko asked him, chuckling lightly to herself. He gave her a severe look and kept walking until he stepped off the end of the boardwalk and collapsed amongst a grove of cacti in the sand beyond the town. Out here, the sun was hot. Cleansing. Yumiko gave the place he just stumbled from a concerned look. I think you should try to keep moving. You're not out of danger yet. I think I'm about to be out of danger forever. Soon enough. He said to her in Russian. She gave him a sad smile and knelt, touching his shoulder. Her touch felt like nothing. But he remembered her skin and the light pressure of her nails and pretended he could feel it. 
Shadows played over his face and he looked up and saw Garvey standing over him. On land, Vasily could get a good measure of the man, or the thing he'd become. The body was probably eight feet toe to skull. Ten if you included the mouth once it opened all the way. But even those measurements didn't look right. Nothing about the creature seemed to want to stay in place and form. Joints snapped and relocated as Vasily watched. Its snout grew larger, longer. Even its tail seemed to be receding up into its body. Only the eyes remained the same. And though they were the eyes of a man, they may as well have belonged to any lizard on Earth. Vasily looked to the sky as it opened its mouth and descended on him, choosing instead to watch the shadow of an eagle turning in the air. Mother's money ran dry, but still the boy was sent out to get medicine. Sent out, at least, to sleep amongst the silent dragons floating the night waters. They growled and bellowed to each other in the dark, and sometimes he found himself growling along with them. Moods would take the boy and he would drag himself through the dusty front yard on his belly, licking at the air and pretending he could taste the world around him. Dreams would pull him deeper into these fantasies, and he would slip in and out of his lizard skin until the rising sun cleared his mind. Mother knew this about him, sometimes even dragging herself from the bed to watch him through the window. He would see her up there, eyes dark pits and a moonlit mask of white. Only her face, though. She was too weak to stand tall at the window and would kneel at the sill or sit on her bed and stretch her body over the nightstand. Sometimes he saw her at different windows and other times many all at once. Face pale as the moon and her eyes and mouth like open pits that simply hovered in the unlit house, swallowing the light and trying to swallow him. She forced him to the town. Forced him. That's how it was and he knew it wasn't right. The unfairness of making him walk all those long, lonely miles to the thundering clatter and stink of the city. It smelled always like horse shit and people, sweltering together and mixing their filth in great gutters that ran the length of every stone street. They hung out over balconies and spilled drinks and asked questions of each other and him, interfering. They were always interfering, is what it was, bothering and prodding and asking, wanting, trying to get something from him when he clearly had nothing to give. It was the money at first. And then it was his body and his time. Men asked if he could move this here or, if he wasn't touched, could he count well enough to throw barrels with them colored boys? Could he read? Did he know his numbers? Question after question, so that in time he felt hot in the face all the way in and out of town on account of how much he didn't know. Things he never knew he wanted to know that lay just outside his grasp. He asked mother, and mother did what she always did when she was displeased. Had him come up beside her bed and hold out his hand. When he was a boy, more a boy than he was now, though that's all anybody called him, mother included, she would strike him on his face or neck with the flat of her hand, trying again and again until she got a good, loud crack off his skin. That's how you knew it took, she said. Now she just dug her weak, nasty fingernails into his wrist as hard as she could and he would watch as the skin went white and then sometimes red if she broke the surface. Mother told him he didn't need to know numbers or letters and that was that. History books and mathematics and maps were what the federal boys had used to ruin their home. They were what had dragged his father off to die. With all that learning came the fruits of the forbidden tree knowing about things like honor and duty and country and getting so smart you couldn't see how stupid you really were. Getting holes put in you for nothing. And all you needed was the swamp all along, she told him. That's what every stupid, well-learned boy finds out when he's spitting up blood in his fine brass buttons. All you ever needed was the swamp and your mother, and now you'd have neither. 
Frustration kept the boy in town longer after that speech. He didn't want to be around Mother for the first time in his life. Or, rather, he was letting himself not be around her for the first time. Picking at the crescent moon scabs her fingernails had left, he watched the people moving around in their disgusting city of stone and iron. His eyes followed the bouncing, silken women and their little children floating about and behind them on their errands. Watched men with dark intentions in their eyes slink in and out of alleys. He rubbed his empty fingers together, thinking about the money Mother didn't have and the pursed lips of the apothecary who used to smile every time the boy rang the counter bell. Dreams came to him now in the inescapable midsummer hotness of the shaded alleys. A man pushed past him, and when he turned, the boy could almost see a fishiness in his eyes, a distance. The man gave him a look the boy had never experienced before, almost as though the man had noticed him and... That being an unagreeable thing, befouling himself with the sight of such a lowly creature, had unseen him, rendered him invisible, had simply pushed the boy's very existence slightly out of alignment with the frame of the universe and, in so doing, had unmade the boy entirely. The boy felt himself moving the way he did sometimes when hunting, as though his hands and his body had been loaned to another person for a few minutes while his mind rested. He grabbed the man's coat at its base and dragged him back into the alley. The man protested, slipped, and fell onto his back. The boy stomped him dead, crushing his neck the way he might crush a king snake's skull with his heel. Nothing interesting happened aside from the man's death. Even in the swamp, such a kill would culminate in a short, curious silence. In this city of stone and shit, there wasn't so much as a hiccup in the strides of the people outside the alley. A woman walked by only yards away and didn't so much as look at the gently twitching feet of the dead man. The boy still dragged him away deeper into the shadows, not thinking of being caught. Caught wasn't a concern he could truly idealize within himself. It was instead a sense of dressing a fat kill. A great slab of meat that was his, and only his, so long as he could keep it. He took the man's belongings, money, papers, a vial of numbing powder, and a pistol, and shoved the body into a cubby surrounding a basement window. Get off me, goddammit, Elam said trying to push Mildover off his midsection. The priest, not quite conscious, rolled into the rising water and woke instantly, spitting and gasping and struggling to his feet. Elam groaned at the additional pressure and then tried to stand himself once he was freed. The priest looked around and found both their hats, handing Elam's back to him without meeting the young accountant's eyes. We need to get out of here, Mildover said raising his foot out of the water to inspect his ankle, as though that would provide some deeper insight into their situation. Elam took a deep breath and looked around as well, finding a section of loose clapboards in the wall nearest him. There was no leaving the hovel the way they'd entered. A support column had shot up through the floor during the collapse and obliterated the only door, the front half of the roof and, thankfully, the bed with the dead white thing. Elam realized it was that the priest was looking for right now, not an exit. What is wrong with you? Elam asked, not raising his voice. He wanted to, but didn't. Don't worry about me, the priest said. His voice had returned to its usual calm, though Elam could still detect a lingering shakiness. Just find us a way out of here. Elam watched the man for a moment longer and then turned to the loose clapboards. Here, he said, pushing a full three-foot section of them away with little effort. The priest turned to the resulting light and nodded, still not looking at Elam. With a few minutes' work, they were out of the hovel and climbing onto its roof, searching the nearest platforms for any obvious way to get to safety and finding Nil. Ducky, you up there? Mildover shouted. Vicky! Elam watched the man pace to one side of the broken roof and then the other. All the while, the priest's eyes flicked about in search of the white thing he'd shot. 
Elam looked down at the rifle in his own hands and then at the broader pool of filthy water around him. The collapse had driven the hovel and its base against a sheer wall of natural stone covered in cut marks. It was one of many small islands that rose from the water and a few other platform houses were tied into it. Mildover, Elam said. The priest was still calling for the others. Mildover! The priest stopped shouting and froze, not looking at Elam. What the hell's gotten into you, man? Mildover was turned away from him, but Elam could see the man's knuckles whitening around his rifle. I wasn't always... The priest looked at Elam and then dropped his eyes to his shoes. The grip on his rifle slackened. I lived a long time for this. He pointed at his collar. It's a long time since I have... The history, I guess you'd say. With that thing? Elam asked. I was five feet away from you when you shot it for no fucking reason, Mildover. Elam's words were harsher than his voice. Mildover took a breath and turned around, eyes dark behind the dripping rim of his hat. Yeah. He said. I've seen those things. Before. The priest's fingers rose to the scar on his cheek and followed the ritual path of the cruciform, resting at the right hand before sliding down his jaw and finally falling. Elam didn't know what to say, so they stood in silence for a long time. Gunfire, fast and sharp, rang out in the distance. More followed from somewhere else. Through all of that, in the silences that rang between, Elam heard a single silver click in the space between his ears. Sometimes it made a sound like a snapping rope. He shivered. Are they dangerous? He finally asked. The priest shrugged and nodded. Sometimes. He said. But all of them have to die. If you see one, it has to die. Elam took a breath and then raised his rifle. Something was stomping along the boardwalk above them too far up for him to see. The priest made an effort to aim as well, but a terrible internal fatigue felled him and he dropped his barrel with a sigh. Gentlemen? Vicky said, his head popping up just to the left of where Elam had been aiming. It wouldn't have taken much to shift aim onto his head and fire. It was a queer, unwelcome thought that left Elam with a sick sort of feeling in his chest. He dropped his rifle so fast the tip of the barrel skimmed the water. Where's Ducky? Elam asked. The priest had seemingly resumed his sulking, turning again to the dark forest of poles beneath the town. Vicky shrugged and tossed down a length of stinking hemp rope. Elam tapped Mildover on the shoulder and pointed. Go ahead. The priest sighed and nodded, directing Vicky to not try pulling him up outright and to instead find a decent tie-off. The chubby salesman obliged him huffing off and then shouting when the rope was ready. They were struggling together to get the priest over the edge of the boardwalk when something splashed into the water a ways away from the platform. Elam turned, seeing nothing but the gentlest ripples curling the water's edge. Hey, fellas, he said, looking up at the commotion above him. There wasn't anywhere for the priest to brace himself for the final roll up onto the platform and Vicky was awkwardly dragging him up by his trousers. Water plopped and splashed, drips rising to a rainfall crescendo. Elam looked toward the noise and saw a sort of web silhouetted against the scant light beneath the town. Water dripped from the thick ropes, all of which quivered under intense strain. By the time he realized they were lifting something up, the body was breaking the surface of the waves. What little he could see was more than enough. Fangs and a long, vertical mouth bursting from a torso covered in sharp shapes. Elam raised his rifle and fired just as something punched him in his right pectoral. The shot went wide of its target and Elam stumbled, nearly falling as a wave of burning fatigue spread through his body. He looked down to see a nasty barb, like an old man's sharpened yellow fingernail, protruding from his chest. Attached to that was a length of purplish umbilicus, which shivered and pulsed. Elam! The priest shouted overhead. He tried to respond, 
but the tendril in his chest flexed and pulled him off his feet and onto his face. Then he was being dragged through dirty water, unable to breathe, unable to scream, feeling his eyes flutter shut. watched his home sink and rot like his own blackened soul in the shimmering waters of Garvey Pond. It happened over years, bit by bit, but in his mind it played out all at once like a paper flip book he'd taken off a girl he'd eaten. The little book had flipped page to page, showing pictures of a bird and a snake dancing around a cactus. He'd made her show him how it worked while he wiggled a knife in her guts and in so doing had ruined the back of the book with the girl's blood. Then he'd sat and played with the thing for hours while cutting off slices of thigh to roast on his little campfire. His home flickered and sank beneath suns and moons and stars in memory, listing to the side and sloughing off in a flicker that lasted months in real time. His perspective changed, rose as his body aged and stretched into manhood. High, sandy, low-tide passes became muddy hillocks and then unseen risers beneath the clouded surface of the pond, which he waded over again and again to bring Mother her medicine. It came in bottles and bags, powders and pills, but always it came. Nothing in his mind justified this ritual save that he'd always done so, going on now for better than a decade. Never spending more than a few nights away while his mother languished in her silent need, Nothing but the grunting, groaning gators in the swamp outside to keep her company. Glass fell from the windows and either broke or sank into the mud, shifted loose by the twisting of the heartboards of his home. Sometimes he would lay on the moldering blankets left to him in his room and listen to the shards pop and grind like teeth. They lay in the sun for years, always filthy brown save for after a strong rain. Then they would glow blue-green in the sun and shine blood-red and brilliant in the light of the moon. When the waters rose high enough, they lay beneath the surface like unseen fangs waiting to strike your legs. None ever got him, though. The boy, now the man, knew well the pathways of this swamp, its outlays and inways. All roads led back to his mother, who lived still despite her own constant self-neglect. She ate rashers of dried flesh he left for her, all kinds, she wasn't picky. And when the waters grew high enough, she would kneel on her bed and drink. Her clothes had rotted away and her skin hung from her body in great, unhealthy folds. It sometimes lay still over her bones when she moved, as though the flesh couldn't bear to touch the frame beneath. She spoke in worthless whispers, merely begging, begging for more of whatever she needed. He was a good boy to take care of her, despite everything. This he told himself, she'd said, though he'd never really heard a sensible word issue from her throat for years before the end of things. Sometimes he'd find her standing on her bed with her hands to the hole in the roof, jaw working madly as she whispered to the moon. Always, when he approached, her face would show in the windows, dark in the eyes and mouth, It had been a trick of the light, maybe, when he was a boy, but at the end it was the well and true shape of her. Ahead, black hair mixing with the greater darkness of the room she peered from. Flesh whiter than a child's teeth, and her eyes and mouth dark into empty pits. No teeth, no eyes that he could see, though she saw well enough without them, turning the wet spots on him when he approached. Finally, she died. And he found her in bed as though he'd seen her face in every window as he approached. Not just the holes where the windows were, either, but in the broken glass rising from the gold-red glitter of the swamp surface. In her room, which he had to half-dive to get to, she lay in a pool of water surrounded by whatever wood and cloth bits would still float. The mattress itself had long since rotted to slush and been eaten by catfish, 
She said nothing in death, but he administered the last of her medicine and set the bottle on the bobbing surface of the nightstand. Gentle waves eventually pitched it onto its side, where it rolled madly for a second before falling into the water. By the time that happened, the man Garvey had pressed his mother beneath the swamp mud filling her crooked bedroom, turned, and swam for better waters. Moira could only remember the darkness, the cold. Floating in the thing's arms as it shot through the water with her in its grasp. Pressure had crushed her head against her chest and her chest into its forearm. There had been a great feeling of building, of rising intensity, and then... nothing. She left herself behind. And where she went, there was only darkness. And she could feel could really sense there was a place somewhere else she had been and that this feeling of hot, shivering heat and confusion and pain was only partially real. For some reason, she was lying on her side and belching up mouthfuls of water. Her skin burned, her scalp especially, and she could barely see anything when she opened her eyes. Even this hazy blur was more welcome than the dark that had taken her. Moira wrestled back control of her body and screamed so loudly she could feel her neck straining and her ears popping. She nearly swooned from the effort, but it seemed to also reinvigorate her lungs. They began working again in earnest, so much so she was worried about just how much more she could breathe. Soon enough, she was pushing herself to her feet and looking around at the pungent underbelly of the town. Other things were going on all around her. Echoes of people screaming and shouting and firing off pistols. More still were noises of some great catastrophe erupting just far enough to not be terribly worrisome. Around her were simple, ancient bits of dock work like she'd spent her entire life around, though it all seemed poorly made and half-rotten. Hurried was the word she finally settled on, as though it had all been thrown together without a plan. Moira rested her hand on the rounded face of a small stone island rising from the water. Her broken, sodden dock was battened over the rock with rusted iron nails that cracked the face so badly she was hardly sure they were holding anything at all. She reached out to check and pulled a thin, pitted splinter of metal from the stone without the least bit of effort. Only then did she notice the trifle occupying her other hand, clenched so tightly in it, in fact. Her bones seemed to creak when she tried undoing her fingers. She winced and set the sharp bit of metal onto the decking, having to use her right hand to undo the left. When her fingers finally gave, a tiny pebble bounced over the deck boards and nearly dropped into the water, stopped only by a smoldering pile of fabric. Moira gasped and slapped her hand down over it, wincing in pain. It wasn't so much the feel of her stiffened hand moving, but rather something close to a burn. It reminded her greatly, in fact, of touching a hot skillet handle as a child. When she picked up the stone, she saw it had an odd, simple mark on its surface. The same embellishment had transferred onto her hand somehow, burned there, it seemed, as if the stone were red hot. She traced the mark with her thumb and brought her other finger suddenly to her face, realizing some other out-of-place thing. The nasty cut over her cheekbone, left by that awful Pinkerton man their first night on the train, was gone. With a wince, she pulled free a thick black length of catgut thread, one of Vasily's stitches now strung through fully healed flesh. The scar left by the cut itself was a hard, thin line against the greater softness of her cheek. She pulled the other stitches free and held them in the palm of her hand. By incident, they had fallen into place about the mark the stone had left, laying like rays of dark starlight around the circle. Moira shuddered and blew the threads off her palm, watching them vanish between the boards at her feet. Then she tried to shake her head clear and walked up the rickety stairs beside her 
and into the daylight. Dusty ash fell from the sky over Ducky, leaving soft white flecks on his arms and face that smeared when he tried brushing them away. This odd snowfall began and ended all in the same breath, it seemed, so that he almost felt he'd imagined it. What had landed on the buildings around him, the ground, blended so seamlessly with the pale wood he could only prove it had happened by rubbing his finger against the stuff. What on earth? He asked himself. A stunning noise rose in the distance and he had to blink to make sure he was seeing what he thought he saw. A single train car, already ripped open along the top and sides like a tin can, pirouetted perfectly up into the sky and hung there for a long moment. It spun against the blue, for a second blooming a skirt about itself that Ducky realized was a great lot of mattresses and clothing being flung out into the desert. Wow, he said, dumbfounded. Then he remembered the $2,000 he'd stuffed into his own bedding and began running without another thought. That there is a new curiosity, the rider said, stepping up beside the tracks and watching the scuffle between the must and Tolliver. The friction of them beating on each other, trying to eat each other both inside and out, raised blisters of glass in the sand and kicked the train rails about like snakes. One struck wide and nearly flailed Wickless's head from his shoulders. It came up short, and he was glad for it, because there wouldn't have been any ducking. He fell to his ass and felt his heart rocking in his chest. Been more exciting than you used to, huh? The rider said, looking out over the town. Me too, I suppose. His dead skin mask had weathered the ride poorly, the leather shrinking up toward his chin. It gave the face a sour look, its mouth turned up and its eyes squinted shut. Wickless watched as the rider reached up with two gloved fingers and stuck them in each socket, pulling each fully low enough to see. The eyelids ripped at the corners, almost all the way to the ear. Beside them lay a stinking pit of a town that should have been an oasis in all this sand. Dark water lay placid beneath shaking houses of sun-dried timber. It had a hasty look about it, an unfinished look. But he'd seen ghost towns before and after a boom, and they all looked like that when things were done. From the acrid scent of the air, allowing even for the noxious fumes drifting off the things fighting over the train... It had likely been an oil town before its demise. What should we do? Wickless asked. The thing that had been Tolliver Loeb swung around with gelatinous hands and grabbed one of the crew's sleeping cars off the ground. He hurled it at the must and it skirted off the amorphous cloud, spinning up into the air like a dart. Wickless ducked and covered his head with his arms as mattresses and shoes and a whole goddamn body rained down over them. A half-empty footlocker struck him in the face and laid him out long ways beside the corpse, not hurting half as much as maybe it should have. Oh, damn. Wickless said. The body was Coakley, dead as a doornail and now crumpled up and broken in places from mistreatment inside that car. The corpse's shirt was wrapped up around its armpits, showing the red hole the woman had left in him. Wickless saw the man's bandages were coiled up in the fabric of his shirt. The rider said. And I don't see any other way in or out of that town. So I'll be waiting here for the storm to subside. He turned to Wickless, and the smaller man looked down to avoid the dark, eyeless slits in the mask. So you'll be waiting as well. He pointed to the wreckage. Go ahead and find yourself a stick or something, boy. You're useless as a fuck without one. Wickless sighed and trudged around through the wreckage, hoping in some small way that he might find his own pistol just laying out in the dirt. It wasn't a particularly special firearm, but he knew how to work the thing and, moreover, he was used to it and knew it would shoot every time. 
He'd seen men learn the hard way as a boy that pistols were fine tools to look at, but you needed to swing a hammer to know how well it worked, which a lot of fellas didn't do until it was too late. Worst sound in the world was that sad little click you heard firing a lame round. Wickless kicked through a great, corroded slab of sheet metal and into the guts of the security car. Car was generous, given the damage. The thing looked like a pants leg twisted up at the knee, which made going inside damn near impossible. The seats and tables were all splintered, and every lower surface was covered in either sand or random shit the security fuckers had left behind. He pushed himself back and spat in the sand. There was no shaking the memory of that woman cutting him. Pain was one thing. He'd lived through pain in his life, and though that had been some of the worst, it paled in comparison to the shame of it all. Being trounced like that, having her hold him down it, and have her way with him, not being able to do anything while she worked him over like a drunk in an alley. Wickless kept himself from outright bursting into a tantrum, but put his boots to a nearby steel box all the same. He was half hoping his kick would knock it open somehow, but the lid held fast. He kicked it again anyway, listening to the rain of garbage around him as the Titans continued their idiotic slugfest. He kicked the fucking thing until it rolled up on one corner and then kicked it harder until it rolled flat over on its lid. Then he stopped panting and lowering himself to his knees to get a better look. Something, likely those giant things beating on each other, had ripped a hole in the base of the box probably twice the size of his arm. Much of what had been inside had been thrown free, just like the mattress and the other cars, but still plenty enough remained. Gingerly, carefully, he lowered his arm into the box and pulled free the stubby, oiled barrels of a shotgun. It was a fine piece, with gold inlay and silverwork on blue steel and a darkly stained stock. Not the sort of thing you'd use for fighting, really, but a gentleman's hunting shotgun. Thinking of that psychotic bitch, Wickless ran his fingers up and down the barrel and thought he might do just that with it. Jamming his hand down into the box, he managed to pull free a few tidy wooden cases of oiled steel shells. Some were blue and the others green. Birdshot and buckshot, he figured. Though who could tell which without firing the thing? He pulled as many boxes free as he could and managed to dig a satchel out of the security car in which he could store the shells. That finished, he started walking back to the rider, doing his damnedest to figure out how the blasted thing worked. It wasn't a typical breach action over and under, which would break in half just in front of the triggers, but instead had slide loaders on the side like a Winchester. They each let one round in before clicking in place, and when he pulled the lever on the side, they flung the round out of the chamber like a discus. If he got his finger through the action fast enough, the things would fly nearly six feet. Found yourself a toy. The rider asked when he returned. Wickless looked over the gun in his hands and nodded. Well, get ready to move. This'll be over soon. Beyond the rider, the conflagration had calmed. Wavering clouds of dust-yellow gold settled over the steaming ruins of the tracks. Past all that, Wickless was positive he could see a herd of horses whinnying and stamping beside the undamaged portion of the train. If you hurry, you might find that woman you're keen on, the rider said. Only a slight shift in his tone told Wickless he might be laughing under that mask. The gelatinous mass of Tolliver shrank then, quivering beneath a lance of yellow electric that smelled like burning hair, and then burst wide in a fan of scorching droplets. Wickless turned to keep from catching a faceful, and screamed when he felt each speck bury itself into the flesh of his back like buckshot. Then the rider was screaming too, a sound that made Wickless ignore the pain of his burning skin and skulk away like a whipped dog. It wasn't a sound of pain, but of furious indignation, and when Wickless looked up, he saw why. The droplets had burned the rider's dead skin mask away, leaving it to fall like a shrunken leaf onto the horse's head. Wide, wild, pale eyes spun over exposed, lipless teeth. 
rider's spear burst into his hand with a speed that heated the air, and he threw it wildly in the direction of the spray. Wickless couldn't tell if the shot was aimed or otherwise, and didn't dare look up even that far to see. The bond between them was such that he knew looking at the unmasked rider would be a mistake made only once. He heard the rider's horse screaming and turned to see the man's shoulders hunched over the beast. It lay on its side, unable to kick away the rider as he ripped whole sheets of skin from the animal's flank. Wickless ducked his face again as the rider rose, cursed, and wrapped the bloody sheet around his head. Then he walked away from the train and the town heading toward the broad sandstone arches further back along the track. Wickless knew without asking the rider was retreating toward the shade. He rose himself, sure he was supposed to follow, and stopped for a moment beside the horse. It was no longer enthralled by the rider's invigorations, and so lay shaking and dying in a pool of its own blood. It didn't even have the strength to stand. Wickless glanced at the rider, the horse, and then the place beyond the smoking ruins of track, to where she was waiting for him. Then he shot the horse with both barrels, ejecting the cartridges when the beast's heart stopped its sad rhythm. Wickless left, and for a long while the horse's eye still twitched, big and dark and wet beside the shotgun shells resting in the swamp of blood and sand. Garvey picked the Russian up by his shoulders and the Russian spit in his face. Garvey grunted and opened his mouth, shivering with pleasure as he pushed the bulk of the little man into his throat. Shouts and futile, protesting kicks shook Garvey's body, a feeling almost too ecstatic to bear. Eating, eating as an animal eats, swallowing the still-living flesh almost made Garvey regret the wasted years of his former life. Though he preferred women... And he would have so many women when this was through. This alone provided more enjoyment than any of his work as a human. The Russian kicked and Garvey braced his feet and began bucking his hips, letting the new and unfamiliar muscles of his gullet work down the meal. He would have to exercise the utmost caution, he knew, when he finally retrieved Moira. Just holding her against his body had pushed him beyond sense, into the deep waters of instinct. What remained of him down there simply wanted to bite and rend that soft flesh in the moment. To enjoy the scent of blood in the water and return later to pick that ruined body apart, bone by bone. All in time, and more after. He thought to himself, raising his arms to the sun. Okay, then. A woman's voice said... He'd been so entranced by his meal he hadn't even noticed the sound of footsteps. Watching her approach, he still couldn't stop the slow, gentle process of swallowing. The Russian beat feebly against the muscles protecting his organs, causing Garvey to drool and shudder. The woman, the same who had chopped Wickless like lettuce, pointed a folded straight razor at him. Garvey waddled in a circle, trying to find the fastest route to the water. If he could even just slide down there, he could get away from her. Not that she much concerned him, but if she did want to fight him, he'd have to spit out the Russian. She pressed the issue, not waiting to give him an alternative. She slapped her horse and crossed the distance in a second, leaning hard to the side so the horse nearly lost balance and had to scramble in the dirt to keep from rolling over. Garvey, Stunned by this display, watched as she smacked the horse just above its tail. It kicked wildly, hitting Garvey in the knee and hip. His bones shattered and collapsed, dropping him onto his hands and knees, where he vomited the sputtering Russian back onto the sand. The little man swung wildly at Garvey, landing pointlessly weak strikes on his chin and jaw. Garvey wiped his chin and glared at Sue who didn't seem in the least intimidated by his new appearance. She glanced at the Russian and dropped down from her horse, clearly not wanting to risk trampling the man. His eyes rolled about mindlessly as he slipped in and out of consciousness. 
Garvey tried to stand and pointed at the man. Take one step closer and I'll kill him. He said, showing Sue the crocodile nails at the end of his fingers. Something about her eyes was off to him. They were bright and cutting and terribly dark around the pupil as she pocketed her little knife and snuck her hand behind her back. I'm warning you. thrust his hand down toward Vasily and she pulled Wickless's pistol, getting one shot off into his stomach and then working the action with the side of her hand. The little woman dumped the entire cylinder into his chest and then bull rushed him, ducking back from a swing of his arm and then kicking him square in the hip. Without the aid of the horse, he wouldn't have felt an ounce of that kick. But as it was, he howled and hissed and folded, still trying to strike at her as she rolled over him and onto his back. Then she was cutting him, face and neck, going for everything he would go for if it were him on top instead. Garvey tried to buck up his hips and knock her off, roll over her if possible, but she held strong and danced around and over him. Each lacerating strike dug deeper, severing tendons and ligaments in an effort to cripple him. Blood made the scales covering him slippery, however, and by some miracle she slipped and let him catch her arm. He bit as hard as he could, fully intending to take the appendage all the way up to the shoulder. For a long moment, he could see what Wickless had seen in her. He wanted to just break her now, to maim her and take his time with her. Garvey thought of whips and ropes, of chains stretching up and down the bulwarks of a great vessel stranded in a waterless sea. Of this woman, this tiny thing, screaming his name and begging him to release her. Of her offering everything, everything, eyes gone, flesh gone, everything. Garvey bit down and tasted only steel. He worked his mouth, feeling his teeth in her skin, tasting her blood. He rolled his eye toward her and saw the handle of her straight razor jutting from between the teeth at the back of his jaw. He tried to chew it away, to grind through it, but it held fast held his mouth open just far enough he couldn't eat through her. Just closed enough she couldn't get away from him. But that's all he needed. To hold her in place. To wait for his hip to heal up so he could roll her around and around in this dirt. To break her and then bind her in the hold of that ship where he could visit her in his dreams for all eternity. Garvey's eye rolled up to hers and he hoped she could see in his expression that he knew she was trapped. That this was it for her. But she wasn't afraid. Her eye was bright as the morning sun, dark in the center as the grave, and dead set on killing him. Behind her, a shadow grew, black wings that spread up and outward around them. Then he could see it, could see him behind her, face a mixture of man and bird, dark feathers and the sharp, hooked beak that curved over her shoulder. This thing and Sue opened their mouths in tandem. But it was Sue that bit into Garvey's neck, digging through the leather to chew into the cords of his veins and arteries, through all the muscle and grit. Pain overtook him and Garvey drove himself backward, tried to shake her off, but she held true. A cactus smashed beneath him as he fell and his breath fled him forever. Then he felt her hand on his face, pushing it into the dirt so she could better get at him. She was holding him, body tight against his so that he couldn't move. His mouth relaxed as his heart slowed and gave in to death. Then there was a deep, silent peace, like all those hot days laying on the sandy earth in the swamp. He could feel Sue atop him, sucking at him now, 
drinking to slake a thirst instead of simply kill him. But also he could feel the sand, the tiniest little shoots of grass that grew this close to the water. The sun was setting and the water was black and gold and shimmering with the movement of the great swamp kings, the alligators, the snakes. They came ashore and laid their silent heads at his feet and growled and groaned and hissed. His mother's face shone in every window of the house, disappearing one by one as the front door slowly opened. She looked now as she had in death, wrinkled and pale, eyes and mouth open pits of darkness. Saying nothing, she took the boy up by the throat and dragged his limp body in through the front door, taking him into the deep water of her bedroom, into the dark, into the mud. to a close. Badly poisoned and near death, Elam dreams of a lost brother and his haunted past. Following her battle with Garvey, the meal afterward, Sue is faced by a new aspect of her identity. Gato tells a story about his past and Vicky, milled over and Elam find themselves in hostile company. With Garvey's death, have the threats against our travelers diminished or grown? Will the revelation of the Red Letter's contents affect the rider's mission or only push him harder to complete it? And how will the confrontation between the Must and Tolliver end? You may find the answer to these questions and more on the 16th episode of Sin Carriers and the last episode of the Sunken City Arc, Strand. And until next time, as always, stay safe out there. The West Side Fairy Tales is written, read, and produced by Tyler Bell. Sound design, original music, and foley by WSF Productions, LLC. Episode art by Yui Breedlove. All content herein, copyright, WSF Productions, 2023.